Welcome to MongoDB Radio. I'm Brian Ranero. Today we're talking with Luke Lovett, an engineer on our drivers and integrations team and the maintainer of the Hadoop connector for MongoDB. The connector allows you to integrate MongoDB into the Hadoop ecosystem and is one of our most popular open source projects. I sat down with Luke and we talked about what's new in the connector, what it's like to maintain a community-driven project, and how he got started at MongoDB. You've been working at MongoDB for over at least two years, right? Yeah, almost two and a half years now. Tell me a little bit about yourself, where you come from in your career, how you came to become part of the MongoDB team. I started programming a little bit before college, but um, I think that I was definitely hooked uh, when, I was, when I was attending Oberlin. And while I was there, there was a, a pretty large open source community just within Oberlin itself. And I think the idea of open source uh, is what really interests me the most culturally. So I decided that when I graduated, I wanted to work somewhere where I could contribute, make some kind of contribution to open source. That's what got me into MongoDB, it's because MongoDB has all these really wonderful open source projects. Uh, everything that I work on, everything that I maintain right now is uh, publicly available. So that's something that is really important to me. How do you feel your skills and capabilities are, in, I would imagine, enhanced by the fact that you're putting your code out there? Definitely, it makes me scrutinize my own code a lot more. It also makes me very uh, careful about pull requests. I, I want to know whether or not the code that someone is contributing is sustainable in the project. Uh, also, kind of things that seem superficial, like does the code adhere to the style guidelines of the project so that other people can easily read this code and contribute to it. Um, it also keeps the project very much focused on what the community around it wants. Mm -hmm. um, at least in the projects that I work on, I don't really have requirements handed to me from above. Like my requirements really come from the side, uh, from people filing issues in the Hadoop project or from other projects that I work on. And then it's sort of up to me to triage them and figure out what goes into the next release. So it, it, it drives the project forward. Uh, and it also makes me think a lot about the, the, the code quality because it is uh, visible to anyone. Yeah, that's actually an interesting idea. I mean, uh, then the product itself is kind of organically driven by the user base itself. Yes. Um, and I would imagine that there's a little bit of a balance of people wanting to issue pull requests and contribute to the code. And, and maybe there's good ideas there. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the need, as you say, to maintain the, the readability of the code, adherence to the style guide. How, do, how is it like if, if someone uh, issues a pull request, uh, you've got to have a little bit of people skills, not only pe the technical skills to interpret what the pull request is all about, but also interacting with someone. And it, uh, do you find that you have to say, this is good, could you change this aspect of your pull request? Yeah, I think the most important thing to do first when someone gives you a pull request is to thank them for their time. Even if it doesn't, even if the pull request is nonsense or something that you wouldn't ever merge into the into the master branch, you know this is still something that somebody has spent a lot of time on, and they've done it because it's useful to them, and they want to help you. So that that's that's a wonderful thing. So I think thanking them is very important. Usually, what I I, I try to help them fix their code if it needs to be fixed at all. Often, the only thing that needs to be fixed is the style. It's like really nitpicky little things. And sometimes I do feel a little bit bad, like, oh, could you like put one more space over here? <laughs> it really, it really doesn't matter, functionally speaking. But again, I want to make sure that everything reads consistently. 
So I imagine that's really satisfying, actually. It is very satisfying. And it's, it's interesting that you develop some kind of relationship with certain people whose names, again, I, I, I don't really even know. I, I can click on their, the link on GitHub and figure out a little bit about, about them and what else they contribute to. But there are certain users that will contribute like time and time again to the same project. And you start to feel like, oh, yeah, this guy. I love this guy. It's always like sending these great patches uh, finds bugs often before I do and fixes them for me. Like, that's wonderful. Yeah. Now, uh, I wonder, you've got probably ideas and development projects that yeah. you've got going in concurrent with these pull re requests that come in. Does it get hard to balance the uh, reading the, the pull requests, um, uh, accepting them, or offering feedback in a timely fashion, when at the same time you're trying to work out and have concentration on the projects that you're working on or the, the initiatives that you're doing? seems like that could become overwhelming. Is that is that the case? Um, it, it sometimes happens, but for the most part, uh, I trust that people who are making these pull requests, uh, if I can read them, I can do some basic testing, and then if there's something else that needs to be done, I'll, I'll tell them to do it if it's non-trivial. Um, you know, otherwise, sometimes, sometimes I'll have a, a ticket that's open in the Hadoop issue tracker, some feature that I want to implement, and somebody made a pull request for it maybe months ago. And some of them had actually implemented features that I wanted to have already. So there, there's a little bit of overlap between like what I'm planning and what users actually want, which is good. That's a great thing. So I, I do communicate with these people that make the pull requests, ask them if they would dare to rebase their pull <laughs> request three years you know, after they actually made it. And often they say no. So then I'll try to rebase their code if it's possible, or I'll take major ideas from their code and, and merge it into master and credit them somehow. Right. That's, that's yeah. good. Yeah. That's nice. So, um, and, and also to, to come to be responsible for this particular project is not a trivial thing. I mean, the, the, the Hadoop connector is a fairly sophisticated piece of of software. It's not, yeah, um, when I started diving into it, it took me uh, not just a day to get the gist of what was going on. Like, you can dive into that thing and figure out different components, different ideas about what it's trying to achieve. Um, yeah, so I mean, it, maintenance is a, probably a, a, a full-time job for the, for the connector, among the other things that you're responsible for too as well. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of support around the Hadoop connector. Um, part of the reason that it is so complicated is because the Hadoop connector doesn't support just one project. It supports uh, many different projects that all kind of have the same underlying idea. Yeah. So it's about uh, distributed processing in Java. <laughs> yeah. Essentially is what the, what the project supports. So that means Apache MapReduce, uh, Pig, Hive, and the kitchen sink. Right, and that's yeah. and that that whole ecosystem and every aspect of it, yeah, it just which itself grows, and therefore the the responsibilities of the connector have to grow too as well. Yeah, with that as well, with the changes to the Java driver, uh, uh, probably changes to the driver means that you've got to bring the Hadoop connector up to speed with those changes in uh, the Java driver itself too. Mm -hmm. That's probably how how's that been? Is that well the. 3.x version of the Java driver has mercifully kept uh, a lot of the legacy API mm -hmm. that the 2.x driver had. So fortunately, there hasn't had to be uh, much change at all in the Hadoop connector. It's basically a couple places in the code um, putting in adapters that work with either version. 
Um, but for the most part, nothing has had to happen yet. Uh, in the next major version of the Hadoop connector, I will try to bump it all the way up to using the new API and not using any of the deprecated uh, methods or objects in the Java driver. Right. Yeah. So the development is ongoing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Especially too, considering that there's new versions of, of Hadoop that come out. And, Definitely. And that has to be upgraded too as well. So that's pretty interesting. We talked about like the, the discipline and the art of maintaining the connector. Maybe we should go into what is a what is a Hadoops, and um, <laughs> why should I have a connector to it into MongoDB? Uh, so, like Hadoop is a very very buzzy term, but I found that while people have heard about Hadoop, they don't necessarily understand it, mm -hmm. or people are maybe familiar with it, but they don't know it all the way that they probably wish they did. If I were completely brand new to Hadoop, what is it? Why do I need it? What do I use it for? Sure. So when you're using you know, a database or anything else, you're, you're often trying to answer some kind of question. You know, when you have MongoDB set up, and maybe you have your user profiles stored in there, you have a question like, what is the user's name that has this ID? And you just do a lookup. And that's a pretty simple question to answer. Right? But um, often it becomes very interesting to ask deeper questions. Like, uh, you know, some user has bought um, some product. Right, what other products might they be interested in? Mm -hmm. right? And that requires a little bit more analysis. Um, and it might be okay that this question does not have to be answered immediately. You might ask this question on a daily basis or on a weekly basis. Um, so what Hadoop allows you to do is it allows you to ask these more sophisticated questions at minimal cost in hardware. Like MongoDB, Hadoop is a distributed system and it scales uh, more or less horizontally. So you're adding commodity machines to your Hadoop cluster, and that makes your Hadoop cluster more powerful. It allows you to answer these questions more quickly. So if I were going to characterize the, the jobs that, or the, the workload that MongoDB does uh, as opposed to Hadoop is, we're thinking about our online transaction processing with, with MongoDB. Day-to-day -day, uh, business availability, logic about keeping um, the system going, uh, maybe CRUD operations, things like that. Stuff that's classically handled by an application database. Right. On the other hand, Hadoop, though it is a distributed system and it shares some notions uh, about how it has to operate in architectural ideas with MongoDB, it's a different kind of uh, idea that we're, we're not using this for online transaction processing, but just basically data processing, finding insight on stuff. Um, right, it's an analysis framework. Right. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So, um, and from that, we would say, like, based on prior experience, we can make some predictions about what might happen in the future. Mm -hmm. We can find uh, maybe an audience. We define a demographic or mm -hmm. an audience that is using our product or, or something like that. Maybe even do fraud detection and things like that. That's right. And and all of these, like, the data that that is backing all of these use cases that you mentioned, those those data might live in MongoDB. And what you want to do is analyze them with Hadoop. So that's why you need the connector, because the connector allows MongoDB to be used as a source or a sync for any type of job that you might run on Hadoop. Right. OK. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, when, it, when we talk about Hadoop, I hear about Hive. I hear about MapReduce. I hear about uh, Pig. What does the soup mean? Hmm. Right. So yeah, Hadoop has kind of become a, an ambiguous term. Uh, as far as what it exactly describes. And I think that right now, in my opinion, 
Hadoop really describes uh, sort of all of the things that you just mentioned. It can kind of mean any one of those things. Um, HDFS is the Hadoop distributed file system. Um, that's not really required for running Hadoop. Uh, it's just a really convenient way to store files, uh, basically uh, distributed across your, your workers in your Hadoop cluster. Um, and Hive and Pig, uh, these technologies are uh, just rest on top of one other application called MapReduce. Uh, MapReduce is probably the like one of the original applications to run on Hadoop. MapReduce allows you to use the classic uh, like the, the classic functional programming notions of of mapping and reducing to process your data. These functions are very easily um, parallelizable mm -hmm. across the cluster. Um, but writing a MapReduce job requires knowledge of Java, and sometimes it's not exactly obvious how to use these primitive mapping and reducing functions to express more complicated analyses. Uh, like how, like some machine learning that you might want to do isn't exactly, uh, it's not easy to translate that into a MapReduce job. In fact, it will take uh, many different jobs running in sequence, uh, perhaps, to get you the answer that you want. Right. So, so some higher level of abstraction is necessary in order to express these ideas. So that's what Hive and Pig and other technologies provide is, is some higher uh, level interface for expressing what you want to do. Right, like I, I, may, I know the analysis that I want to run on the system, mm -hmm. but I may not be a, a Java person. You know, I, you know I, I maybe understand the world from an SQL-like syntax, and that's where Hive would come in. Right. Or, yeah, so it, it's, it's enabling, it's simplifying things taking the Java out of stuff <laughs> yeah. while preserving the functionality. And it allows it to be a lot more concise because you can write one script that does your analysis rather than you know, a dozen different Java files. So what are the things that you've been working on lately in the connector that you, that you like and you've been excited about? Yeah, uh, well right now I'm working on a new release of Manga Hadoop. Uh, the version number will be 1.5. And um, one of the major things that it aims to support is uh, support for one of the, the newer projects in the distributed um, analytics space, and that's Spark. It's been around for uh, a little over a year at this time. But one of the reasons that Spark is so nice is that it's, it provides support for other languages. Um, so not only Java, but also uh, Scala, Python, and recently R as well. So um, one, thing, one, one problem that the connector tries to solve with Hive and Pig and everything else is providing an interface that is idiomatic for whatever the tool is that you're working with. Mm -hmm. So it needs to do that as well for Spark. Um, so I have taken a look at the uh, API for Spark. How does a Spark programmer try to interact with, for example, the PySpark shell? That's the tool that allows you to use basically the Python interpreter to, to run Spark jobs. Um, and I'm trying to figure out uh, how to make the Hadoop connector work with Python. What are, what are the challenges that you've identified so far? Well, one of the biggest challenges is that the Hadoop connector itself um, is in Java. Spark itself, the core of it is in Scala. Right? So both of these things run on the JVM. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can imagine how they might communicate together. In fact, Scala and Java are very interoperable. But Python, that's something, something else entirely. Right, so that's one of the challenges is figuring out how do we get the Python shell and the JVM to work together. Right. Actually, and that's an interesting aspect of 
probably the cool thing that there's a lot of buzz around Spark mm-hmm. recently um, in the last few years. The, the, kind of the interesting thing playing with it myself is that there is this interactive shell. Like I can just I can type at it, and I don't necessarily have to create classes, a, a mapper class, a, a reducer class, compile, deploy, right. and test. It's there's a lot of that kind of functionality boiled into it uh, that I can just type away at the command line, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty interesting. And I guess the uh, this is kind of an interesting point is that you can use interactive Python with the Spark connector and are we thinking that we're going to take that into the Hadoop connector? Like, That's right. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the idea is that you'll be able to start up the PySpark shell um, with the right jars on the class path. And you will be able to do jobs with Spark and what you'll get back out um, from MongoDB if you're doing processing with MongoDB. Um, you'll get PyMongo objects out. PyMongo is the Python driver for MongoDB. So. Mm-hmm. Any, any Python programmer who's using MongoDB right now is, is um, at least familiar with some of the API that PyMongo provides. So it, it's sort of the expected, um, it, it's, it's what's expected when you're working with uh, Python at all in MongoDB. You want you know, an object ID that has the same methods that PyMongo provides on it. So that's what uh, the Hadoop connector is tasked with doing. So it sounds like, I mean, the barrier for entry into using kind of advanced analytics that are provided with the Hadoop ecosystem is lowering. Definitely, definitely. Because, yeah, it's almost, it's, it's amazing to look at um, MapReduce, writing a MapReduce application versus working with the Python shell in Spark. It's a world of difference. Right. Right. Because you have at least two different classes that you must write to, to write your MapReduce application. And you can do the same thing in the PySpark shell in like one or two lines of Python, huh. right? It's it's a lot easier to work with, definitely. I think it, like that given being the case, I mean, what's kind of exciting about this uh, working with customers is that there's an, now that there's this availability of this kind of sophisticated analytics uh, and a means to process it in addition to uh, infrastructure as a service, the way that people conduct their business uh, or the, build their application stack, the way that they're going to get things done is going to involve what had formerly been heavyweight analytics processing that you could only do with a huge, a huge cluster or with, with specialized engineering brain power. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to be pretty trans, transmor, whoops, excuse me, transformative uh-huh. in, the, in the future. Um, would, you, would you agree with that? I, I definitely agree. I think that... Um, yeah, some of the yeah, just some of the scripting languages that have been introduced on top of MapReduce, and some of those technologies are a little esoteric. Sometimes they're poorly documented. It's hard to get started. Mm-hmm. It's hard to even set up a Hadoop cluster. Yeah. honestly. Um, so definitely the barrier to entry, how much you need to know to get started, has decreased significantly. And I think that Spark has done a really good job of documenting their product and making it really easy to set up and use. And I think that, th- that the fact that they're targeting many different languages is giving them um, a wider array of programmers who are able to instantly get started with them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, formerly, um, I've done a couple of uh, sessions where workshops setting up uh, Hadoop with MongoDB 
setting up uh, the connector and definitely a vanilla original MapReduce uh, uh, Hadoop cluster is not for the faint of heart. No. <laughs> and and it's, it's an interesting tool and it's a yeah. fascinating space to work in. But like you say, the documentation has been lacking in some cases. You have mm-hmm. to kind of read in between the lines about what could be going wrong with why this thing isn't compiling the way that right. you thought or deploying the way that you thought. You have to be a, a decent system administrator to set up Hadoop. Right, yeah. right. Uh, especially if, and one of the things that we've we've talked about are the advantages of using MongoDB with Hadoop is that you're putting basically that processing power on an existing data set that's easily accessible through MongoDB. Mm-hmm. And a, a, a opposed to having to ETL out that data to a separate HDFS cluster, like I have to take data out of one cluster system into another cluster system, and therefore my operational overhead is that much more. I've got that many more nodes. That's right. So, yeah. So, so yeah. The connector can read from a live running MongoDB cluster. That's certainly one way to do your processing. The the other thing is that you can you can do uh, sort of what you described as the negative case, and that is to pull out the data from MongoDB as BSON using a tool like MongoDump and putting it onto HDFS or some other place. And the connector is also capable of reading these files. Um, it's, not, it's not without its own merits doing that, because when you do that, you, you know what you have. You know what the data is. It's not changing, because your application um, isn't modifying any of the documents that are part of that BSON. You've taken a snapshot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that allows you to play with it all you want. Nothing is changing underneath you. And, and when you do your reads from Hadoop, it's not actually reaching your MongoDB cluster. You can hit that file all you want, but the quality of service in your application won't change. You're not inducing an incredible load on the database because you're, you're examining every... You're not hitting the production database exactly. with this heavyweight analytics load. Right. You've isolated it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And you can, you can mitigate this... You know, even with a connector, you can you know give your own read preference to hit certain machines um, that you think can handle this load, or that you've set aside specifically to handle this load. So yeah, there there are ways to there are ways to do it either way. Yeah, sounds sounds yeah. cool. Now the connector, what what is the job of the connector if we actually looked at it in a component basis? Sure. So one thing, so so there's this class called the input format. Mm-hmm. Uh, the input format defines how data is going to be accessed. Uh, so there is a, a Mongo input format for how do I read from MongoDB. Uh, similarly, there's a BSON file input format. How do I read BSON files? So the responsibility of the input format is to, first of all, define how to get the splits. Now, what splits are is that they, they represent ranges of your input data set. Right, so our input data set often is a MongoDB collection, right? And we want to know how do we split up documents in this collection into hopefully roughly equal sized pieces um, so that, and, and each of those pieces will be processed in parallel, right, right. By, a map, by a map task. So the, the Mongo input format will use one of a number of different uh, splitting techniques to provide those splits. Um, each of those splits get handed off to a map task. Uh, the map task um, does its thing on each one of them. It, it uses a, another class that we define called a record reader. 
um, which is an iterator over a split. So the record reader is, is given one of these input splits and is yielding uh, one document at a time from it. So to back up, essentially, sure. the, the idea is that we have this giant data set, or a data set of some size, mm -hmm. probably very large. We want to distribute the processing of that data to multiple nodes. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, in order to do that, I've ha I have to split up that big chunk of data into smaller portions and hand out those portions to each of the Precisely. executor nodes. Those little tiny chunks or those little portions are, are the split. That's, That's what right. we're talking about, yeah. the split of the data. Okay, yeah. cool. So the way, the way that this usually happens, um, especially against a standalone MongoDB uh, instance, so a replica set, is that the connector will run this command called split vector. Um, and split vector is an internal MongoDB command. It's used normally um, by our own uh, sharding system to basically break up the collection into equal size chunks. And it uses a, an index. Um, that index follows the same constraints as uh, you know, your shard key. So, you know, that, that will give us even splits, and that's it's usually what the connector does. Yeah, and this is how, like, the way that MongoDB gets its work done is very similar to the way that Hadoop system gets its work done. Right. Um, so why not leverage the same kind of ideas mm -hmm. of uh, we need to perform a split f to process the data just as MongoDB needs to divide chunks to distribute across the nodes. So we, we plug right into that same mechanism, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. yeah, and there there are a number of other ways to do it as well, and it's some it's one of these knobs that you can tweak in the connector uh, to choose exactly what's right for you. Because um, the in, the input split for the processing that I want to do, the way that I want to divide up the processing in Hadoop may not be the same way that I've that I've chosen to distribute the data across the nodes. Absolutely right, because when you're when you're sharding your collection, you want to shard the entire collection. Um, you want all of your data to be there. Maybe you know you're you're distributing it maybe in some very particular fashion across your shards, but when you're using Hadoop, you don't always want to read in your entire collection. You know maybe you only want to read documents that have published set to true or created on is after a certain date. And so now when you're looking at a subset of that collection, for example, if you're reading from a sharded system, maybe you're only hitting two out of twenty shards, right? So you don't want to split by reading one shard and then the next shard and then having you know, 18 empty splits right. or something like that. So it requires a little bit of thought and it requires at least a little understanding of how the split processes or how the splitting works and looking at the different splitter implementations that the Hadoop connector provides and then choosing the right one. It's, it's very important to try to choose the right technique because that's sort of the, the way that you split is the quality of your, of your splitting technique is going to determine the quality um, of your, your parallelism, how well you can parallelize this work. And that's sort of the, the whole point. Of the, right. One of the whole points, yeah. Right, right, right. So, uh, so the, there, had, there, there are recent changes. The uh, earlier versions of the Hadoop connector had different splitting strategies, but uh, I think there were only about four varieties. Or, like you could split on the shard key, you could split on, uh, it, like a shard would be an input split. That's right. Um, have, have things changed recently? Yeah, things have changed a bit, and and one of the the major reasons that uh, I've decided to add some changes here is that people often want to give a query to the Hadoop connector. Um, like as I mentioned earlier, you might only want to look at documents that have published set to true or created on is after a certain date. Mm -hmm. 
right? So when you use a command like split vector, or if you read directly from shards, right, we, the connector would already create a split representing each range, say representing each shard, right? And it creates a cursor for each one. And then what it does is then it, it filters by this query, right? So if no documents on a particular shard on one of these input splits we've already created matches your query, then you've started this map task, it does nothing, and then it goes away. So that's sort of a waste of resources and it's kind of lying to Hadoop about how many real splits it's going to be getting. So right. it's not doing the best job that it possibly can. So the problem that we, that we want to solve in the next version is how do we get um, quality splits when there's even this uh, query, this filter that you've given us, and uh, we want to make sure that we're not giving you empty splits uh, and that the splits are more or less of equal size. All right. So. Um, so for example, uh, if you're trying to use the, if you're trying to filter based on some date, like created on, you know, you're looking at documents that are, you know, within a certain range of an index, perhaps. So um, splits that exist before, uh, that exist outside of this filter will be entirely empty. So um, what, what we've done is we've added another option called like filter empty splits. And what this does is it just basically, it tries to grab the first batch out of the cursor. Mm -hmm. And if it was empty, it doesn't add the splits, add the split to the splits list. Okay, right. so, so essentially uh, the, the understanding that's required for this is that uh, Hadoop or Yarn, the resource negotiator, is saying like, okay, this, this processor, this executor, is going to be uh, uh, fairly loaded based on the number of splits I've assigned to it. But if the splits that I'm giving it are essentially empty, I'm giving it, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not really using that executor correctly because I'm giving it a bunch of empty boxes of data and the only granularity that I have to understand how loaded a system is on the number of splits that I've given him. Right. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> and in some cases that might mean, oh, I'm going to start up a JVM, I'm going to set everything up, start all these threads. Okay, never mind, shut it all down. Yeah, and give them nothing to do. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, so uh, so the what's changing now in the Hadoop connector is that if we can determine that what we're about to feed into the system, what we're retrieving off of MongoDB, is essentially an empty split, mm -hmm. stop it right there. Right, and there's a little bit of cost to be paid because when we iterate the cursor, we get the first batch. It requires a network round trip. I do we do retrieve some documents ahead of time, mm -hmm. and we don't we're not really using them for anything. We're just seeing if they exist. Or not, and if they do exist, then great, we add the split. If not, forget about it, right? So it, it it requires a little bit more time during the actual splitting process, but you can save a lot of resources later on. Right. It's and presuming that you're doing larger amounts of processing, that this pays off later on. You pay mm -hmm. a little bit more cost up front, but you get yeah. the benefits as as you move on into uh, you get more resources devoted to real data. Yeah, and this is why it's important to have at least a little bit of knowledge about how your splits are going to be created, because there's no point turning this feature on if you know ahead of time that none of your splits will be empty. You know, you may as well save yourself the network round trip by retrieve those documents if you know they're there. Yeah, I mean, it sounds it yeah. sounds powerful, but honestly, right. it, it sounds a little bit more. You have to be a little bit more sophisticated and have an understanding about the way that you're going to be processing your data. Right. One of the cases would be, I'm presuming that if I know that my input splits are not going to be empty is that if I am splitting on the shard key, the same 
distribution pattern that MongoDB uses for mm -hmm. distributing data evenly across the, the, the nodes, the MongoDB nodes, I can presume that the same, if that's the same key that I'm using for my input splits, it's going to be the yeah. same distribution pattern. So I wouldn't need to do and, and you haven't given it, you haven't given the connectors some kind of query that's going to eliminate yeah, many different right. chunks. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, very, very cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, you know th that's sort of just one one of the cases. There's also sort of a a separate case where you know what if your query doesn't represent a range? Because um, again, if it does represent a range, there is some there's some range of the index that has all the documents that you care about, and some range where you don't. Like it has all the documents you don't care about. Mm -hmm. And if the splits are just kind of arranged equally throughout the index, some of them are empty, some of them are not empty. But if you have if you're looking at sort of just an exact value match. On the index, and that field is an index. Say published is true. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't have an index on published because it's not very selective. Right. It's sort of a binary value. So now your documents might be spread throughout the index, and if you're trying to create these equally sized input splits, then one split might have one document in it, another split might have ten thousand documents in it, and so on. So now it's very uneven. Um, so. Yeah, one one node on your on your Hadoop cluster might be very very overloaded, and the rest might be doing nothing because they have a much they have a much smaller uh, input set. But Hadoop doesn't know about that. Yeah, it can't it can't. Right, really so it's the that. connector's responsibility to ensure that that doesn't happen. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So that's actually we've made a new splitter called the paginating Mongo splitter, uh, which kind of uses the same technique that you might use to display uh, pages of results. On a web page, um, you know, basically using uh, range queries to split up your uh, your input collection. So again, it requires a little bit more work on the splitting side, but it can be a lot more efficient on the Hadoop side. So just so I understand, the the idea is if I issue a query, let's again, let's do time based. I'm doing incremental uh, okay. analytics. So anything that's come in since the last time that I ran my analytics, created by date or something sure. like that. Um, so I issue that, and there may be one document and one input split. There could be five in another. What is the connector going to do at that point? Does the is that the pagination input split that that? Well, it relies the this this uh, input splitter. This splitter requires uh, manual user configuration. Um, so the Hadoop connector does try to guess what kind of splitter is going to work for you, and it basically it basically comes down to are you using a sharded cluster or not you know for, for what kind of splitting technique are you right. going to get um, so this one you know you might want to turn you might want to manually choose this splitter if you know that you have a query that's going to select documents sort of randomly throughout the index on which you're splitting mm -hmm. so that will allow you to it, the Hadoop connector will automatically build up these range queries for you and make these evenly sized splits but okay, I gotcha. So um, I may choose to split on one indexed field, but I have additional selection criteria right. that gives makes it more blotchy. Exactly. Right now, is there another layer then to understand that that empty empty input splits are then coalesced into one before it's sent into MongoDB or uh, excuse me into uh, into Hadoop for processing? Uh, no, if if the split is empty, it is it is just emitted. Um, okay. Yeah, there's no real advantage to adjusting what the range is on the query if you're just 
making it larger and you're going to scan that part of the index and not get anything out of it. And then you scan the rest of the input split and you get some more stuff. Well, so you may uh, as well just look at where you know the data is. Okay, yeah. so what, it, what I mean is that if, uh, if I, I see that I've got 10 input splits, one, is filled, one of those splits is filled with 10 documents, let's mm -hmm. say. The next one it only has one document in it. Is the, is the Hadoop connector then regenerating input splits, like mapping them to be oh, more yes. even? Yeah, so the paginating uh, split, will, what it does is it's, you say, oh, I want to make sure that my input splits have at least 500 documents in them. Right. And what it will do is it will build up a range query on the given index until it has 500 documents in it. Okay. And then it will keep going and it will keep emitting these splits that have at least that, that number in them, um, except for maybe the last one. The last one has the rest. Right, right. The, the padding, if, right. if you will, if exactly. this were like a, an encryption type of yeah. idea. Okay, so that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, so this, this is, this is a, a major improvement for uh, parallelizing your work from MongoDB if you have an input query to the connector. Uh -huh. uh, that's, it's been, again, this is, this is largely from the community. Uh, there has been a pull request that's been open for years um, on which many uh, people have complained that you know they get one split with millions of documents on it and then hundreds of splits that are completely empty. So it's yeah. been very tricky to try to use MongoDB and Hadoop together if you have, well, if you're only trying to look at a very small subset of your input collection. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, as you say, there's more work to be done ahead of actual processing. Mm -hmm. But once that that work of organizing the input splits correctly then each each node can be utilized better once you've you've got it there and except for the slot the change in the last input split yeah very interesting wow that's cool yeah and it seems like one of these really esoteric features or ultra technical but it is it's worth understanding because it is one of the crucial components of getting good performance with Hadoop. Well, and the, yeah, and, and yeah. it translates actually out into like if, if I've got this cluster that's underutilized, um, the the economics of running it become more questionable, mm -hmm. right? I can't, I'm not getting the most bang out of my buck, and something like this makes it more compelling to like I'm 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 not I'm getting full utilization of the processing power that I have there, so that it makes makes the overhead of such a system justified. Um, sounds cool. How, how, what percentage of this this feature came from the community? Um, well, the community proposed a a skip and limit kind of splitter. Mm -hmm. But um, as you might know, when you when you're doing a, a skip on a cursor, right. you're starting at the beginning of the index and you're fast forwarding over to a certain point that you determined. And if you're doing that for hundreds of splits. That's a lot of scanning going on. Right, that's a lot of traversing of the index. It's unnecessary work. Right, so this, this feature largely comes from the spirit um, of that pull request. It comes from the, the needs of that pull request, but it didn't really take any of the code from it. Okay. Yeah, because I, I, I think that there are better ways to go about doing it. Um, and uh, you know, definitely when, when this uh, release of Mongo Hadoop is uh, a little bit more mature, what I'll do is I'll, I'll put out a release candidate and I'll notify everyone on that pull request to go ahead and try it out and see if it works for them. Because, I mean, ultimately what I'm trying to do is support these people. And I want to make sure that it actually fits their use case. Yeah, so that's actually yeah. an interesting aspect of just exactly what you've been talking about is yeah. that you are, what you work on is driven in a large extent by the community, some cases 
integrating the community changes, the code changes that come from the community. But in some cases, you're the you're the guy in charge, you're the MongoDB mm -hmm. expert, and you say like, I get what you're asking for, but there is a better way to do this. That's pretty cool. That's got to be very satisfying. Yeah, it is very satisfying. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. So, um, wh where do you think the future of the the Hadoop connector and the work that you're doing with it will go? I mean, is are there there's a laundry list of more features that you'd like to put in there? A lot more community requests or. Um, there are a few more community requests. Um, I think the connector right now doesn't quite provide equal support for all of the you know, programming interfaces that it claims to support. So we claim to support Pig and Hive and Flume and Spark. And support for each of these things exists, but they don't have feature parity across all of them. Mm. So I think in the future, uh, the Hadoop connector will need to ensure that there is, there is feature parity among all these different things. Um, there are also users out there that are still using Hadoop 1.2, um, which is a, a very you know ancient version of right. Hadoop. Um, and the Hadoop connector at some point stopped working with that version. So I want to figure out where that happened and then remedy that. And and kind of the tricky thing with that is that there's an entirely different Java package for that Hadoop 1.2 stuff versus the modern Hadoop 2.0 stuff. And uh, right now, the Hadoop connector also mimics this by having two different packages. And largely, the code is uh, copy and pasted between these two modules. So it makes maintaining it kind of tricky. Huh. So um, in a future version, what I'd like to do is squash these things together and provide support for all of this stuff under one roof. Uh, yeah, I guess, yeah. and that the the feasibility of squashing it kind of remains to be seen until you go back and you investigate why the one dot two. There's, stuff. Yeah, definitely some work to be done there. Oh, that'll yeah. be pretty interesting. One <laughs> yeah. one last question that I have about this: um, whenever I'm demoing the Hadoop connector or talking about integrating MongoDB and Hadoop together, uh, there's usually a concern about data locality. Mm -hmm. Um, the idea with Hadoop, of course, being that uh, that you process data where the data lives, rather that you move the processing over to where the data exists. Now, in MongoDB and Hadoop, that's harder because you're integrating two separate systems uh, uh, and exchanging uh, or using the same data uh, across these two systems. What, you know, what what do you think about that? Uh, data, achieving data locality is that something? that the Hadoop connector should try to do, or is it, um, the, the idea being, of course, that if we're moving data across a storage node to a processing node, um, we may not get efficiency of the processing uh, load because it, it, we have to move bits over the wire, and that's right. gonna take time, it's gonna increase latency. Totally. Um, however, in, in the case that we're using MongoDB and Hadoop together, is there, is it, is there a trade-off with regard to um, achieving data locality, is it something that you feel it should be done? I think that it would be a pretty significant benefit if we could do that. And mm -hmm. I think that there are certain cases, certain topologies that you might have set up in MongoDB um, where, you, where it might be possible to get data locality out of it. Um, so, so what that would, would involve is you would put your worker nodes, your, your Hadoop worker nodes, and your MongoDB instances co-located on the same machine. So in, in other words, your MongoDB nodes and Hadoop nodes are one and the same. 
Um, and what the connector would have to do is figure out what MongoDB node has the data that that worker node needs. Right. Right. And then it would distribute the splits such that each split would be located on a, on a, a Hadoop worker node whose corresponding MongoDB node on the same machine has all the data that it needs. So, so there is you know, a socket opened, there is some data transfer there, but it's all going over localhost. Right. So it would be very fast and basically neutralizes you know, network latency there. Yeah, uh, um, we, uh, the reason that I mentioned that is that we have had this discussion, you and I, yes. <laughs> before. Yeah, yeah you, you had this great idea and you, you opened the ticket, uh, Hadoop 220. Well, I didn't mean now. to. I didn't mean to see the plug, but yeah. <laughs> the uh, it's interesting though. Like thinking about it, uh, also it's like I actually have ambivalence about it because the one thing that I would say, like, yes, data locality would be cool. The only thing I would think about is I would caution people to be careful because now you have two systems um, competing for resources on the same box, mm -hmm. right? You have um, MongoDB, which requires caching uh, in RAM as does uh, uh, Hadoop, um, as would Spark. Um, and so I think that data locality is an interesting topic that definitely we'd, it would be, we'd benefit from it. But at the same time, it's like, wow, I can just see people under-provisioning these, these boxes and then you know, losing out on resource contention mm -hmm. on, that same, on that same notion. Um, it just kind of shows that this is not an impossible system to work with, but one that you you, you got to have you got to be a certain level to use the connector. It would definitely require a lot of manual setup and configuration. It's right. sort of setting up the dominoes exactly right to yeah. get this to work. And I think that maybe at the at the core of this feature would just be allowing the user to have a bit more control over what specific node gets ex what specific split. Like you're, you're able to control, okay, all, all splits that are labeled with this location should go to this node. Because mm -hmm. you might, it's possible to set up you know, a network where you know that, know that the Hadoop, some Hadoop node and some MongoDB node are closer together. And you want you know, this worker node to always process data from here. Yeah. And so on and so forth. Even if they're not exactly on the same machine, I think that there are some other use cases where you know, this could be beneficial. Yeah, and I think at this level too, it's this. This is part of the whole thing that makes this particular project or this kind of integration between two different systems on a distributed cluster kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. And and these answers aren't always easy, but therein lies the kind of the cool thing about working out how these systems will work eff effectively um, together. So that's that's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, definitely. Well, cool. Um, we are almost exactly out of time, uh, but I wanted to thank you so much for coming and chatting. This was fantastic. Oh, thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, and, and uh, we'll have to come back and talk about more stuff about as the connector continues to evolve and, and other projects that you're working on as well. Cool. Thanks a lot, Luke. Yeah, thank you. See you soon. All right, see you. Thanks for listening, folks. If you like what you hear, we've got so much more for you on our website, www.mongodb.com community. Don't forget, our main event, MongoDB World, is coming June 28th and 29th in New York City. Keynote speakers include Eric Brewer, Hannah Fry, and Mythbuster Adam Savage. Register at www.mongodb.com world16. Use discount code podcast to get 25% off. Let us know what you think. Tweet at us. Our handle is at MongoDB. I want your feedback too. My handle is Blimpiad. 
Come back next week for more MongoDB Radio.